Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. I'm your host, Violet Luca. McKinsey, the consulting firm that advises 90 out of the world's top 100 businesses, prides itself on secrecy. Yet, in recent years, that mystique has been greatly diminished. McKinsey gained notoriety not simply by virtue of its high-profile alumni, like Jamie Dimon, the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, who lost $6 billion in risky trades and still got his year-end bonus, or Pete Buttigieg, the current U.S. Secretary of Transportation, whose response to the police shooting of Eric Logan while mayor of South Bend, Indiana, led much to be desired, but through its choice of clients and involvement in foreign government corruption scandals. But what does McKinsey's advice look like? Ian McDougall, who has done in-depth reporting on the consultancy for ProPublica and the New York Times, offers us a window into this rarefied world of thought leadership or impactfulness, whatever they, whatever they like to say. For the January 2022 issue, McDougall writes about a particularly bizarre slide from a PowerPoint presentation McKinsey gave to the New York City Department of Correction as part of the DOC's project to reduce violence at Rikers Island. I spoke with McDougall about McKinsey's work culture, changes to the firm in recent years, and what happened during its failed attempt to curb violence at the nation's second largest jail. You can see the entire PowerPoint presentation, along with McDougall's annotation, at harpers.org. Here's our conversation. The story of McKinsey over the course of its 90 years is kind of the story of American capitalism, or capitalism itself, and different trends like this madman marketing in the 1950s. So much of that was guided by McKinsey. Globalization guided by McKinsey. And they advise 90 of the world's 100 largest corporations. And yet, I don't feel like they were super familiar outside of a business sphere until probably like the 2020 election where Pete Buttigieg, a former McKinsey consultant, and it kind of became more of a better known name. But it still preserves its mystique. So could you talk about that McKinsey mystique and its ubiquity yet relative secrecy. Yeah, it's, you know, McKinsey, the sort of top folks there would be thrilled to hear you say that no one, no one really knew about it until 2020. <laughs> I mean, that's, you know, the, the, the McKinsey mystique, that whole the sort of secrecy, it's part of their strategy, for lack of a, a better word, which is, which is that they, as I think uh, the journalist Duff McDonald put in his book, The Firm, about McKinsey, you know, they, they don't take credit when their advice succeeds, but they also don't, perhaps more importantly, don't take the blame for when it fails. Right. Like Enron. <laughs> right. Well, right. No, I mean, of course, right. I mean, um, what's his name? Was it Schilling, the guy who ran? I mean, he was a longtime McKinsey partner, and McKinsey teams were all over Enron up until basically the point that it came unglued. And there have been moments that have, I think, kind of underscored for, for the firm the value of kind of staying out of the headlines. So the in the, you know around 2010, 11, 12, there was the Galleon hedge fund scandal which ensnared, among others, a, a senior McKinsey partner who had been involved in insider trading and also the former head of the whole firm who was no longer there, but had led the firm really into its modern incarnation in the 90s and, and pursued this sort of very aggressive growth strategy, which I guess set the direction for the next you know, 30 years or so of McKinsey's history, which has, has been good for the folks making money at the top, but has not necessarily been great for the, the name of the firm. Right. And could we get into how McKinsey 
turn toward government contracting because for many decades, that was something they would not touch. And now they're not only sort of participating in government contracting, but they're advising how to do government contracting, like literally affecting the rules of government contracting. And that that applies in the U.S. And then, of course, that applies in places like South Africa and Mongolia. But I mean, the U.S. case, I think perhaps for this this particular topic would be the most helpful. Yeah. So they, they actually had, I guess, starting in the 50s, when they opened the Washington office, they got involved in uh, government in the U.S. at that time. And they, I think they take credit for creating the chief of staff position when working for, I think, the Eisenhower White House. And then they were heavily involved in setting up NASA as a sort of mostly contractor type structure, which is sort of a theme you see throughout McKinsey's history is, is usually the advice is something, is something like be more like McKinsey in some fashion. Or, or be more like the private sector, and so uh, they they kind of they they were never the biggest player in that area, but they were a serious player for a while, until I guess around I think it was at the end of the '60s, early '70s. I, I don't I don't remember the date exactly, but a guy named Carter Bales, who recently died, was basically operating as both a, a McKinsey partner and essentially a bureaucrat in New York City government. You know, there was an investigation that no criminal wrongdoing or anything like that was found, but the headlines were, were really bad for McKinsey. And it looked like you had taken a, a partner who's currently on the payroll, so not even a revolving door thing, and then put him in government in a place where he could influence who gets contracts going forward. So, you know, however that actually operates, it looks pretty bad. So at that point or around then, they kind of said, all right, you know, public records laws, there's all this sort of transparency stuff that doesn't really work for us in the corporate sector. We can just, you know, have in our contracts and, and agree with CEOs. Don't tell people we're working for you unless you absolutely have to, you know, by you know, criminal process, essentially. Anything less than that, don't tell them. And that kind of works out because there's not a whole lot of transparency rules in that context. And so for, the, you know, for the next however many years, a few decades, they, you know, they would work abroad occasionally for governments. But in the U.S., they kind of stayed out of it until, as I was saying, in the 90s, Rajat Gupta, who, who later went down in the Galleon hedge fund scandal, he sort of took advantage of the you know, corporate boom boom years of the 90s during the Clinton years to, to really aggressively expand the firm and, and grow its revenues very, very quickly. I don't remember the exact figures, but it's, it is a re- remarkable pace of, of growth. And, you know, the, the problem with consulting in general is you're always, you go and you advise on something, but eventually you kind of tap it out. Like you've, you've advised the player, there are only so many players and you've advised them to the extent you can, you got to find something else to go to. And when you're trying to grow at that rate, it's even more stark. So, so eventually that kind of, you know, what do you got? Well, you know, government is, is, is there and hadn't really been accessed in the U.S. until now, sort of towards the end of the Bush administration, early Obama years. Uh, in fact, the they firm was heavily involved in restructuring the FBI after 9-11 for, for Bob Mueller. So, so they, they saw the opportunity, they needed to grow. Partners in the Washington office saw the opportunity to move into government and, you know, once they kind of saw that it worked and it wasn't disastrous for them, uh, they, they kind of kept expanding into that market and, and have, have continued to do so over the last 10 odd years. And they're not alone. A lot of other consulting firms that, that uh, have not traditionally been heavily involved in government have also moved into it. The Obama administration was very keen on consultants. It was sort of technocratic uh, approach to governance that overlaps a lot with the style and approach of, of uh, management consultants. So I wanted to expand on that idea that there are certain administrations that really took this idea of consulting. And again, this is kind of 
kind of building off of the idea that government is a bureaucracy and bureaucracy is a synonym for inefficient and difficulty and just something that does not work when I actually a bureaucracy is describing a form of organization <laughs> and the idea right. that oh government it's always pork it's always going to be inefficient when in fact as you you know you're so alluded to before when you're working with a corporation it's a privately held company you know there's no need for transparency there aren't as many rules and so you're really only responsible to the shareholders in that situation but now there's been this real push to make government more like business that has come from certain administrations. So could you, does that simply come from an idea of government as inefficient or is it coming, you know, sort of in addressing that to potential critics? Or is it coming from the fact that people who go to McKinsey are also people who tend to end up in administrations? Oh, yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's certainly some of each. I mean, there were, there were a lot of McKinsey alums in the uh, Obama administration. I mean, the, the fact is there are a lot of McKinsey alums everywhere because there are just, there are a lot of them. And many of them just did, you know, like uh, people will, I remember when, uh, I forget why this was coming up, but Susan Rice, who had been, I guess, what the national security advisor under Obama. Yeah. She did a couple like most people who worked there did a couple of years there when she was like quite young and it's sort of, <laughs> people spun it up to be some kind of, you know, like she was uh, somehow part of some kind of Illuminati or something. But, you know, the, the truth is like most, most of the folks who, who worked there worked there for a couple of years and, and then went on to other things. But still, you know, that doesn't mean that they don't still have connections there and don't still admire the place and think that it would be the kind of place that might improve the agency they're working at or, you know, whatever part of government they're in or have oversight over. But but there's also certainly the uh, government should be more like business. And that, can, that can mean a lot of different things. But I think it's sort of the, and the, the, the views of a more sort of technocratic mode of um, people who, who subscribe to a more technocratic mode of governance you know, this management consulting is kind of the, what they, I think, often think of as sort of the best of the business world, which may, may not always be wrong, but I think that the sort of the, the premise is a bit more suspect, I guess, and, and, and that it's not really clear what that means to have government business. I mean, I, reading your annotation, my eyes, of course, flashed or whatever when I read the part where you spoke to a former McKinsey consultant and they said that McKinsey's only allegiance is to capital and that they're just invested in continuing things more or less how they are. And it's the idea that you're selling your services as this transformational thing, as you compare it sort of like a self-help guru, you don't really ever let go. You're paired with them for life because you still have so much room to grow. It's very, it's very worrying to think that government is not necessarily allied to what is best for people, but it could be allied to what is best for capital. Yeah, I mean that 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 long precedes McKinsey's. Uh, oh yeah, <laughs> no, they didn't invent it. Right, right, right. <laughs> but yeah, you know, one thing to sort of to understand about McKinsey is that the partners, the senior partners, the guys who run the projects, they're kind of more like, you know, sort of like in the, the business of sales. I mean, they go around and they're kind of trying to pitch their stuff to new clients and they might pop in once a week or, or, or maybe more often if they're more hands-on, maybe less often if they're less hands-on. But most of the work is done by, you know, recent college and business school graduates. And increasingly they have, they, they adopted sort of generalist model for a long time, but they've more recently kind of started hiring PhDs and some, some more subject matter experts. But it's really, you know, the, the bulk of the work is done by 
these uh, younger consultants. And, and many of them, I've, I've talked to many of them, but I was reporting on McKinsey for ProPublica. And they are, you know, usually like come in with good intentions. They, they are often sort of folks who were interested in good governance kind of issues when they were in college or business school. And I mean, and a lot of them come away from it sort of disenchanted, but, but I just, I say all that by way of saying that, you know, the, the folks who are working on, on the government projects aren't necessarily out to undermine government, but the reality is, you know, you're working under partners and in a, a culture that is very much as that former consultant put it, you know, sort of very allied to the, for lack of a better way of putting it, sort of uh, neoliberal markets are everything sort of approach, almost sort of laissez-faire approach to, to government vis-a-vis the private sector. So even those of the younger consultants who might say like, well, I shouldn't, or if you talk to them, they might sort of say, well, you know, I'm not sure actually that was the best approach. That's kind of, you know, you're, you're in that bubble and that's the world you live in when you're working at McKinsey. And so now that culture can be a pretty powerful thing within an organization. And that very much animates the advice that McKinsey gives to government clients. Right. It's sort of this contradictory thing, right? Where you have a lot of young people, intelligent people from PhDs, whatever, from PhD programs coming in and advising much older people on how to make things more efficient. And there's a sense of idealism. But is it just simply the capital or is the culture of the organization and its philosophy, how it approaches projects? Is it is it more than just uh, let's make this make more money? Well, in the, in the private sector, generally, yeah, I mean, usually it's, you know, cutting costs or somehow expanding revenue. So yeah, it's usually about money. They'll do these, you know, sort of overhauls, transformations, they call them, of organizations. But usually that's kind of like a byword for like downsizing to cut costs, basically. I mean, to be fair, like there are surely plenty of, and I mean, I've seen some of them, there are plenty of times when when McKinsey comes into an actually sort of inefficient company with sort of an outmoded workplace structure and, and, and they improve it. But in government, taking that kind of a, an approach, well, one, it's, it's often not possible because of labor protections in, in a lot of government jobs, but, or civil service protections, but, but also, you know, it's just not, government is not in the business of being efficient in the profit-making sense, you know, maybe to a limited extent of budget office or something like that is, but that's, you know, the point of government is not to, to, to make sure government spends the least amount of money and takes in and sits on the most amount of money or whatever it's, it's to serve the public good. And, um, those two aims are often in competition. And, and then on top of that, you have the fact that government also operates in this ecosystem that that has a lot of implications for private sector companies, many of whom are clients of McKinsey and, and other, you know, other management consulting firms that work in government. So, so you know, w- w- when there's sort of this ethos of the private sector is best and knows all, that can lead to some fairly dubious, I guess, advice in the government context. And it's not, you know, necessarily some kind of, you know, I represent this client and if I give this advice to government, it's going to directly benefit my client. I, I don't think that happens very often if at all, but it's more that when your sort of frame of reference is what's best for capital and what's best for, for the private sector, you bring that to your advice to government and it's hard to learn to think differently and, and there's not really much of an incentive to. Yeah. Because again, it's not just... When you work at a company, you're not just getting an external reward from how well the company does. You're getting encouragement from inside of the company. People tell you, you're doing a good job, do more of this. And I think sometimes that gets lost when we're thinking about 
you know, thinking of McKinsey as like this secret evil organization that it's like, no, it's a, there are real people there who are just like you at your own job, just trying to do the best that they can, not piss off their boss. Right. But one of the biggest places in which government and the private sector kind of overlap just by sheer volume of the prison population is in prisons, right? And could you talk about McKinsey's restart program and how that quote-unquote innovation led to McKinsey advising New York's Department of Corrections about staffing and ways to reduce violence? Yeah, so this was, um, so I, uh, 2019, when I did this series for ProPublica, this was one of the pieces was about their work for, for Rikers. And, and the restart concept was to try to basically write a, a program that would, would try to match up inmates, I should say uh, detainees, they're in jail. For, most of them are not serving a sentence, they're awaiting trial. Yes, something that gets lost also, I think. Exactly. Yeah, there's some people serving what they call city sentences, like very low misdemeanor sentences there, but most, most of the people are or at least back when McKinsey was there, so much has changed in the last few years at Rikers. I'm, I'm not exactly sure now, but most of the people, the vast majority, were just awaiting, sometimes for a very long time, trial. But so the idea was basically, you know, we won't put, you know, a guy who has a record of stabbing every person he's been in a cell with in with a kid who got picked up for a jumping a turnstile, that sort of thing, you know, sort of trying to use um, basically you know, a computer program to, to, to match up folks who are least likely to commit violence within the jail setting, which isn't, you know, a bad idea. But the way that, that they went about it, I found when I was reporting this, it didn't quite work out that way. They, they started off with sort of using, selecting just detainees who were known to be, uh, known by, by guards to be, um, you know, not nonviolent. And they just sort of stacked the pilot units with, with those folks. Which you know makes some amount of sense, and, and this is what the then head of the corrections department, what McKinsey itself would say, is that they were trying something new. They didn't want; they wanted to make sure they were trying this new approach. And there were other aspects to the approach than just the matching thing. And good stuff. I mean, providing more programming for for um, detainees and sort of different incentives, and trying and trying to take a different approach to to how the guards interacted with detainees to reduce violence by guards on detainees and vice versa. But when this was presented to, I forget if it was the oversight board for the Department of Correction or, or the city council, that detail that they cherry picked who was in these housing units was omitted. So it just looked like, wow, these these reforms are driving down violence by 70 odd percent. But of course, that's in part because of who they put in there. Now, the idea was then to eventually move into a broader mix of the population. But would anyone who, and this is part of the problem of having folks who don't really know the culture of a corrections department or a jail, they didn't realize what was inevitable was that <laughs> the guards and their managers were going to say, geez, this really works. You know, we're, we're getting all this credit for this great stuff. Let's just keep doing this. And so even after McKinsey stopped being really directly involved in that and handed it off to corrections officials, at least as far as what I was able to find in reporting on it, basically the corrections department folks just kept channeling the less violent detainees into these units so they could say, hey, look, the violence is down, it's staying down, it's because we're doing such a great job, give us uh, commendations and praise and everything else. And the folks at the top of the corrections department say, we had no idea that was happening. I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I can't prove that's not true, but that's kind of troubling in its own right. Yeah. Isn't that the other thing about companies is that, well, well, I didn't know. You know, it was the guy before me. I don't know what was going on. I mean, 
you know? Yeah. Well, it's any organization. I think people have a tendency to do. Exactly. Yeah. That's what I'm, that's what I mean. It's just like, again, one of the realities of working that you pass the book when you can. Oh yeah. (laughs) So, you know, we have the entire deck, this entire PowerPoint presentation deck. You annotate one of the slides on this deck. Could you describe that image and sort of what's going on? What's being depicted in this slide? Yeah, it's it's sort of, it's a, a, a grassy hill with a bunch of these kind of clip art sheep, but they had this sort of deranged looking way, sort of cockeyed and the tongues lolling. And just, it's, it's, I don't even know where you would find such an image. It's very peculiar. But they're saying this field and there's kind of a fence between them. And, and one, there's these signs. One side says transformation barriers to change. The other says organization barriers to change. Yeah, basically the supposed to illustrate when you're trying to overhaul an organization like this, you know, what are the sorts of, what kind of resistance you're going to come up against? So the sheep are saying different things like, oh, my manager won't like that. Or, oh, I can't do that because X, Y, Z. And like, why do I need to use data? And that sort of thing, you know, basically depicting the employees of their, their McKinsey's client as just sort of these, you know, complaint necks who just, you know, will go out of their way to avoid changing the way that they do things. Not necessarily inaccurate, but it's just a, a kind of peculiar way to both to to present the employees of, of, of your client, I mean, present to the bosses at that organization. This, this was presented to management at the Department of Correction or, or, or more um, senior folks. But it, it also, I would be sort of insulted, I think, if someone showed me this, like, what am I, a child that needs to be shown cartoon sheep to understand your brilliant insights. Right. It's just a very odd, and frankly, even in, I mean, I've seen at this point, surely over 10,000 10, sort of slides, McKinsey slides. And this is, there are plenty of weird ones, but this is particularly unusual. I'm not really sure what the, I was never able to figure out kind of who would put this <laughs> together and why. Although I, I suspect it might've been a template they used from somewhere else whose organization is spelled with an S, like in the British way. So. Ooh. I don't know. It's I, I've, I've never been able to quite figure that out. Yeah. Or some other Commonwealth country, I used to say. <laughs> but right. still, that is very, yes, yeah, you're, yeah. you're right. To... And McKinsey's, McKinsey's in all of them. So it could be any one of, any, any one of the Commonwealth yes. countries. Thinking about this slide purely as an image, it's a very strange image. Do you feel like it represents some sort of shift within the company or the cockeyed sheep or perhaps uh are are telling a story of something worse to come yeah if you talk to folks who work there even as recently as as 10 years ago they would say that you know god if you put clip art or anything in a slide you fired immediately i mean it was just not a (laughs) you know it was a there's still a sort of template format for the slide decks they put together which is you know the bulk of their mckinsey's work product but but it was you know much more pared down much more uh sort of direct and professional and having looked at thousands and thousands of pages of slides from McKinsey, they're full, you know, they're full of sort of bizarre and often like inappropriate seeming as, as in this case with the sheep, uh, clip art in the case of their work for ICE, which I report on for the Times and, and ProPublica, you know, some of it was like, you know, here's the chain of how people get you know, detained and, and held and deported by ICE and sort of these little stick, you know, stick figure clip art jail and, you know, paddy wagon. Oh. It's, it's really kind of like um, just almost um, flip kind of approach to these quite serious human uh, issues that, that suggested a sort of detachment from what was really going on. And um, that, that was true in the uh, Rikers work as well. And, and then folks who worked on it kind of looking back will say, yeah, you know, we, I think uh, sort of lost some perspective. So McKinsey came in, they wanted to reduce violence at Rikers. Just for context, in 2013, 
129 inmates suffered serious injuries that could not be treated by doctors at Rikers. Mm. Also, the rate of spinal cord injuries, very high, getting extremely hurt. Again, for minor offenses, because detainees can't afford to pay bail or they were denied it or what have you. So McKinsey comes in, second largest jail in the country, has this huge problem with violence. What is their sort of strategic plan about doing this? And I feel like data is part of it, but and surely it's 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 more than that. Yeah, I mean, so the, the project kind of evolves as so many of these kinds of consulting projects do, not just McKinsey, but they're the masters of this, I guess. They 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 get their foot in the door. In this case, they were brought on to work with an institute at, at CUNY to uh, basically try to identify through surveys and, and data analysis, basically what were the drivers of violence and what were the things they could do to try to improve conditions at Rikers. And uh, should, uh, I, we say at Rikers, but it, it was the whole corrections department. There are a few jails that aren't on Rikers, but almost all of them are in New York City, or they were at the time. And so they do that initially. And then what they always do is they say, hey, well, you know, we can stick around and help you put, you know, help you put this into practice and sort of give you some leadership seminars on the side and we can fix this, that, and the other thing. And, you know, that's the, the people who make partner and get at making that pitch. And so quite often, as in this case, it works out. And then suddenly, you know, a, it was originally a, whatever it was, $1 million project lasting a few months, last two and a half years and costs like $27.5 million. But so once they kind of got in there, so, so I mean, they didn't really have anybody who had experience with how a jail or prison operates. They did bring in an expert or sort of like a short-term advisor on contract who had been a, a police chief and by all accounts was, was liked by the guards of the jail and so and so on, but but didn't have really any experience with, with corrections. I was kind of as close as McKinsey got to that. So a lot of their advice kind of reads like what the advice they give corporate clients, which is, you know, leadership seminars, a lot of sort of corporate speak, business school speak about how to, you know, improve morale and other things, which I think sound great to a lot of the you know, more kind of white collar positions in the, the headquarters uh, office, but to a lot of the, the folks on the ground on Rikers, guards and so on, just sounded like cutesy nonsense and wasn't really speaking to, to what was going on there. You know, they, they didn't, they didn't talk, they, they, they surveyed the guards and, and, and other employees of the correction department. They didn't talk to inmates, they didn't survey inmates, I'm sorry. They, they would be in the jails and talk to them, but there was no sort of systematic attempt to understand from detainees' perspectives, what the issues were and how they could be improved. The people getting seriously injured had no say in this process. Yeah. Or, or, yeah. Early on when they were kind of trying to identify the issues and put them in place, as they put them, you know, sort of implementing them, they would spend time in the jails. And there was, you know, a lot of interaction with, with detainees there. So I don't want to say they, they, they had none, but, but when it came to how do we, what are the problems and how do we fix it, there was lots of input from the corrections department side and essentially none from the detainee side. But it's, you know, it's, it's sort of the, it's a sort of version of what McKinsey long had this, what they call top management approach where they would, you know, they used to only work with CEOs. They've since kind of, again, with the expansion, they've had to kind of go further down the ladder, but, but there's sort of this, you know, where we're not, we're not going to go talk to everybody in this organization. We're going to stick to the, you know, the sort of management friendly side or whatever. And then a lot of their solutions were these sort of, not necessarily bad, but complex uh, data analytics programs and so on, you know, in a jail that you know, 
<laughs> barely functioning internet, especially back then. I mean, they were like talking to people who worked there. They'd be like, you know, computers didn't work in a lot of the jails. And it's kind of people who worked in the jails were not really trained to do this kind of data analytics stuff and weren't particularly inclined towards doing it, frankly. But so it was sort of this, you know, this mismatch where you have a bunch of folks who are used to saying this, you know, we've written this complex algorithm that will allow you to predict X, Y, and Z, uh, you know, where violence is going to happen and all that. And it's going to cost you know millions of dollars. But at the end of the day, a lot of people who were working there could, as they said at the time, and they were right, like, this is stuff is never going to catch on. It's a total mismatch for this environment, for this organization. So there was sort of a, I don't know, cookie cutter is too strong a way of putting it, but there was a sort of, we're going to do it the McKinsey way and, you know, take it or leave it. It wasn't said that way, but that's the way that it looks um, in retrospect. Right. Who were sort of the types of people McKinsey got to be on this project? They're not just uh, PhDs there. There's a lot of different types of specialists with different areas of expertise. Yeah. And, and back, back then there, were, there weren't quite as many, but yeah, it was, it was a lot of folks who had been, um, you know, who had been former uh, in the military, some former intelligence officials. It, it, you know, you sort of were, because, you know, being in a, in a jail is uh, it, and working on, on issues related to jails can be psychologically quite tough and it can be working in the jail itself can be dangerous. And, and, you know, folks from McKinsey definitely saw some, um, violence firsthand and no one was ever themselves, um, uh, injured or anything like that. But, but, you know, it's, uh, so, so there was sort of, you weren't forced to, to, to take on this, this uh, project by any means. So it sort of self-selected, I think folks who maybe were a bit more, uh, had a sort of more law and order mindset, but, but also, you know, um, some of the folks who worked on it sort of said that the, the team really, I guess, as you, as is natural, when you're spending a lot of time with, um, a client that kind of adopted some of the, the jail guard kind of mentality where I, I think in the ProPublica piece, there's a anecdote about McKinsey says, says no one, no one remembers, but <clears throat> I'm, uh, <laughs> feel pretty confident it happened. You know, when, when, when something bad would happen, it was almost this sort of like feral, violent response from some of the consultants where they'd be like, you know, I hope someone goes in and cracks some skulls over there, that kind of stuff. And, and some of them later were like, geez, like that didn't. And, and, and in fairness, the, the, the partner who was there when that happened said like, no, 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 that's like guys, like that's not, you're not supposed to be thinking that way. Uh, but you know, it's, it's, um, it's another part of, I think what perhaps, um, constrained some of the thinking and, and made it perhaps more in line with, with, um, with some of the thinking that it had caused <laughs> the problems in uh, at Rikers in the, in the first place. Um, uh, but I find that striking that sort of even, even folks who are very, who, who weren't in the sort of more law and order kind of mindset naturally found themselves drifting in that well, direction. Well, Stanford prison experiment. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like this is, this is sort of, a, yeah, a variation on that. So over the course of McKinsey's involvement with the Department of Corrections, the rates of violence at Rikers became worse, which is, again, maybe not necessarily to do with the advice that McKinsey made, the changes they were trying to implement. But of course, it does not look good, especially when you're getting millions and millions of dollars to sort of prevent this violence, to stop this violence. So what was going wrong at Rikers? And what is the situation now? Yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of it was, it was a lot of time spent in, you know, and meetings and trying to get these reform programs in the restart units, the pilot units, get them to work and then analyzing them and, and doing a lot of surveys of, of staff and so on. None of which is necessarily bad, but there's sort of an opportunity cost uh, to it in a way, which is that while you're pursuing these strategies that, you know, a lot of people at the Department of Correction at the time sort of said, this is not going to 
this is just not a good fit for this organization. You're trying to do too much and treating this as if it's something that uh, an organization that it's not, that then eats up all these sort of oxygen that could be dedicated to other strategies to try to reduce violence. Whether this would have worked or not, I don't I mean, there's there's certainly an argument that Rikers was not going to improve no matter what, absent a sort of like wholesale overhaul or or as the city now claims it's going to do, cl- closing it all together and, and starting all over again elsewhere in the city. So that really it was it was sort of you have one you pick a way that you're gonna address this issue if you're you know the mayor or the department of, of uh, correction. And when you pick a consulting firm that's going to give you kind of advice that they would give a corporation or something like that, you're at a minimum just wasting time and money um, that could be put towards an endeavor that's like likely to, to bear fruit or likely are to bear fruit. So it's just kind of like a wasted two and a half years in a lot of ways. And you know, people who 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 worked on it on both sides of both the McKinsey side and the Department of Correction side, you know, even the ones who at the time sort of felt like they were doing the right thing, now sort of will say, well, you know, we probably should have approached this differently. We probably should have had a bit more humility about what we are good at and what we know and what we don't know, and perhaps not assumed that we could just sort of take our general organizational knowledge and apply that to a setting that we really hadn't worked in before. It was just kind of like a lot of effort for for not a lot of gain. And by the time they left around the spring of 2017, de Blasio, the, the mayor at the time, finally came down and said, we're going to close Rikers and build these jails elsewhere in the in the city, um, and they have they've reduced the, in, the detainee population quite a lot since then. But there's been reporting over the last few months that it's I mean it's really just COVID obviously hit it pretty badly. Guards aren't showing up for work and so on, uh, weren't and still aren't. And uh, although you have a smaller population, you know they've also closed some of the buildings, some of the jails there. So it's you know it's not like you have a smaller population spread out over the same space. And it's just it sounds from from the folks who I've talked to kind of stay in touch with people there and from reading the reporting on it, it just sounds like it's basically been the department has kind of lost control. And it's just there's the violence has gotten really quite quite bad this past year or two. And again, some of the problems are not related to violence, but just sort of basic functions of the jail, like the intake process, making sure that people have beds, making sure that they have clothes. And sometimes this will take weeks where people are just held, you know, someone, again, sorry, I keep going back to this. I don't know, bleeding heart liberal, call me whatever name you want. But it's literally, you know, a 16-year-old who jumped the turnstile is stuck in, you know, mm-hmm. they can't sleep for weeks at a time in a bed. And there's nothing they can do about that. And they're going to be held there until it's time for their trial, which could be years. You know, when you talk about, oh, McKinsey tr- sort of tried this model and it failed, it's hard not to think of like, well, a lot of that money could have just gone to like basic services at this institution. Yeah. And, and people who worked on it will, will say that today that, you know, at the time I thought I was doing the right thing. But, you know, I, I came to realize eventually that it seemed like we really we're just kind of, you know, presenting essentially window dressing and that the the real problems are so fundamental that it's not clear anything that a consulting firm could recommend would do much to make a difference. The things that you know, could make a difference and, and, and have, so like, I don't, I haven't followed it close enough to say, but you know, the turnstile jumper, I think in theory with the change to the, the bail laws that New York and other criminal justice reforms they made, you know, it was supposed to kind of prevent people who get caught for this kinds of minor or charged with this kinds of minor offenses that they wouldn't be stuck with cash bail they can't pay. But there's been, you know, a lot of pushback. And I, I think the legislature modified 
the law at some point in response to I, I don't remember the, the whole details but but the, the point is that even the you know people on the McKinsey side will say today you know part of it was just this was not the the type of solution that place needed it needed probably legal changes it needed you know probably just to be essentially burned to the ground and started over again and uh, but you know for the folks in charge on the McKinsey side they were kept the kept the money coming in and their you know their compensation is related to to how much money the partners how much money they bring in and so on so why say you know we have no idea what we're doing here you should not renew our contract when you can say hey renew our contract right. and we'll, we'll get that much more money yeah I mean, are there any groups working to address the hiring of private consulting firms for public concern? You know, like, are there are there any groups sort of trying to put pressure on government to to stop this practice? I mean, or is it is it feasible or reasonable to suggest that, I don't know, maybe there could be laws put into place to, to stop these partnerships? Yeah, I mean, for for a long time, this is the Obama administration was very big into this, and the sort of the on the Democratic side, that era of politicians and you know, De Blasio is one of them. We're very into these like public-private partnerships and all that kind of stuff, which are not necessarily always bad. But when that's sort of your default, that's not a great. That's sort of that business uh, government as business thing um, taken to perhaps an extreme. But oh, groups that are working on yeah, so not really. I mean, there there are good government groups you know out there that will address sort of the issue of government relying too heavily on contractors, revolving door issues, that sort of thing. And then there are groups that are sort of subject matter specific that when that subject matter happens or when a consulting firm working government happens to touch on that subject matter, so opioid stuff, which McKinsey was heavily involved in. Both sides. Oh, very much on both sides. Yeah, I reported that earlier this year for, for ProPublica. They were very much on both sides. Not 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 the same people necessarily, but um, but you know, and McKinsey will say there's a firewall in place, but but I know from my reporting it's not quite as secure as 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 they would like to have people believe it is. And so you'll get kind of sporadic concern raised by various advocacy groups and so on, or various members of Congress or or you know, state and city lawmakers. But no, there's not really that I know of anyway, a group that is really dedicated to to addressing that issue. And, and I should say, I mean, it's not, consulting firm is not always, a, and a government is not always a bad thing, right? Like no, trying, no, no. Yeah, if you're trying to like reorganize your agency to meet X goals, in theory, at least, I mean, uh, you know, a McKinsey, a BCG, a Bain, whatever, like they have a lot of experience doing that at organizations. And so like they, you know, would they do better than someone who costs a lot less? I don't know, but they're wildly expensive. Because that's their function, to be wildly expensive and to come in and with these new ideas. Oh, yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah. but you're right, there could be contexts where this makes sense. Yeah, but it's, it is a fairly narrow, compared to the amount of things that consultants are hired to work on in government is a fairly narrow subset of tasks. And, you know, a lot of it's they're used by managers in government the same way that managers in the private sector use them, which is to make suggestions that are going to be unpopular among the workforce, to kind of run interference for them in various ways. So there's also the problem that why are these kinds of companies hired so often? Well, some of it is like we were talking about earlier, the sort of just a preference for this kind of technocratic or sort of businessy sort of approach to things that was in vogue for a while. But there's also a, a more I suppose, self-interested from the perspective of individual managers. <laughs> that, that's another aspect of it, which is, which is that they, you know, I may want to bring them in because they'll let me do things that if I just tried to do them unilaterally, I would get, you know, there'd be kind of a, an uprising within my organization. I mean, that in government is, is it's bad in business too, but that's the shareholder's problem, you know, not mine, <laughs> I guess in a way. But if you're, you know, if you're a, a 
person who's represented by that government, it is your problem if, if managers are using these kinds of companies to, to essentially um, uh, advance their self-interest rather than the public interest. Right. And I mean, something, again, sort of talking about the fail rate, you know, there's a success rate and there's a fail rate. You know, like McKinsey's role in the opioid epidemic, that's a pretty bad fail. Yeah. Helping ICE find detention-saving opportunities. That's a, that's a fail. Even Kmart, you know, they, they messed up Kmart. There's no more Kmart. <laughs> <laughs> you know, how does McKinsey's reputation survive? Because it's, it, it is, I mean, again, it's like they're doing a lot and they're also failing a lot. Yeah. And I mean, you know, on some level it's inevitable, but I think it comes back to, to what you were asking about earlier, which is the, the mystique, this, this, the secrecy, the, the non-public or, or effort to keep out of the public eye, the nature of their advice and, and work. Sure. It, it means they can't tap their successes, although there are lots of ways that you can do that without taking out an ad in the New York Times or something or wherever people take out ads these days. But on the other hand, you know, it's much more costly, obviously, to have your, your failures aired publicly because then everybody knows about it as, as it stands. You know, like, first of all, like a lot of managers aren't going to want to admit, I hired these guys and they, you know, they screwed it all up and uh, they're no good because that reflects badly on the person who hired them. But, but then also it would require essentially that manager to go around to managers of similar firms and say, hey, don't hire these guys. They're no good, which is like, would be kind of weird to do. So... I think the the downside of not being able to sort of to, to publicly advertise successes is is um, in McKinsey's view probably accurately very much outweighed by um, the ability to keep private the failures. And you know, again, nobody's perfect. No, no. I mean, failure is inevitable. But... Yeah, yeah, I don't want to seem like I'm being hard on McKinsey. <laughs> well, they also, you know, they'll also. They uh, one thing I do find somewhat unseemly when you talk to the, some of the, it's not everyone, but some of the folks there, so they kind of always blame it on the client. Well, the client didn't take our advice, right? It's like, well, come on, man. Like, <laughs> like maybe, but that can't be true every single time. And there are definitely times I've seen where that's manifestly not true. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. I enjoyed the conversation. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save. 